This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, the uh, the GOP tax bill, in part, brought forth the want to do away with the individual mandate, but there were still 8.8 million people who signed up for coverage this year, and that came in a shortened window for sign-ups. So what is ahead for the Affordable Care Act? Mark Pauley is professor of healthcare management and professor of business economics here at the Wharton School. He joins us in studio, as does Rob Field, who is a professor of law and professor of healthcare, uh, health management and policy at Drexel University, as well as a lecturer here at the Wharton School as well. Mark, Rob, as always, great to see you. Happy New Year. Good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. The the 8.8 million signups for the ACA, it sounds like a big number given some of the circumstances, Rob. Yeah, I think there's a real demand and need for this coverage. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who couldn't get coverage before the ACA. Uh, a lot of people uh, in the gig economy who don't have employer health insurance. Uh, so there's a, there's a real need for it. Uh, there was expectation that because of the shorter sign-up period, there would be a lot fewer people. Uh, it's possible that if the sign-up period were extended, we'd have even more people than last year. Uh, but I think the bottom line is uh, there's a real need for this coverage out there. Mark? I think that's right. I think uh, there's a core uh, 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 portion of the population that uh, finds getting their health insurance through the exchanges a good deal because they, most the great bulk of them get subsidies. And then uh, that 8.8 million is probably that core. Uh, I think we'll, last year uh, when the dust cleared, about 11, 11 to 12 million people signed up. We'll probably be, I think, about 2 million, if not a little more below that. But uh, the uh, prediction that the removal of the individual mandate would lead to great numbers of people deciding not to take insurance probably is not going to happen. And um, I think I've mentioned on your show before, uh, my view was that the the individual mandate in Obamacare was so weak that taking it away uh, was still not what I would have advocated, but taking it away is probably not going to cause the sky to fall. Rob? So a little bit of perspective. The um, doing away with the mandate didn't occur until the tax bill passed, yeah. which was pretty much after the... Um, the, the Everybody had enrollment. signed up, yeah. yeah so, so I don't think that was the, the major motivating factor. Uh, the test will be next year uh, when there's no mandate. But my suspicion is this 8.8 .8 million is people who would have bought it regardless because they actually needed the coverage. So is the ACA at a point right now where seemingly... There is, as you both have kind of alluded to, a, a level of people that that we should expect to be in this type of a plan, in these types of coverages, year after year after year, as long as the, it is in place. Uh, yes, as long as it's in place and the subsidies are in place. Right. Uh, so that's the other yeah. big issue. Eighty percent or so of, of the people do get subsidies. And a lot of the states were able to engineer the pricing so that uh, the subsidies were still generous. So uh, as long as that's in place, I think we'll have this demand every year. Mark? Yeah, it has a clientele. Uh, I think the, the main reduction I see from purchasing on the exchanges would be the people who didn't get subsidies, who were only about two million people. Uh, and uh, of course, we're not quite sure whether they will just go to off exchange plans or whether they'll go to self insurance taking their chances. Uh, but uh, uh, as long as uh, uh, as long as there are subsidies in place, uh, there will be people who will show up to claim them. I think that's sort of an iron law of economics. Uh, and uh, so there, there, there will be this uh, um, Two and a half percent of the population that will be buying their insurance through the exchanges. And, and in the past year, obviously, this was such a, a big political 
issue mm-hmm. uh, in, in Washington. We were talking before we went on the air about whether or not this ends up being a, a an agenda item for uh, the GOP moving forward here in 2018. I guess the question is, with all of the other issues that are potentially out there, does this, to a degree, take a back seat? I, I, I think it does. They've got to keep the government funded. They've got to deal with child uh, health insurance program. They've got to deal with the cost sharing reductions yeah. under Obamacare, which Susan Collins had made a big deal of. Uh, so, and, and that's just on the health care side. Uh, I think one big question is going to be whether people start taking noncompliant policies, uh, whether we start seeing people taking these short-term bare-bones policies uh, right. as, as an alternative. Um, politically, uh, this may take some of the wind out of the sails, ironically, uh, from the Republican arguments against the ACA. Is when they talk about people being harmed by it, it's the people who had to buy coverage, who didn't right. get subsidies, right. and had to pay these uh, outrageous premiums. So that's no longer the case. Uh, so, so that sore point uh, in terms of the people who, who were financially disadvantaged, uh, they've taken it off the table. So it, it's going to be harder to make that argument uh, that they've got to do something about it. I think the only, yeah, the only thing they did legislatively was to remove the individual mandate. And that was kind of put in at the last minute as right. part of the ta- overall tax reform bill. So uh, I don't see uh, standalone uh, health care reform legislation passing Congress, uh, uh, even the sorts of uh, changes that Senator McConnell has promised to bring up in the Senate. Uh, whether they'll get through Congress seems to me to be really an uh, uh, open question. Uh, what I think is predictable, though, is administratively uh, there can still be a lot of uh, uh, of changes that the administration can bring about. And the main one, I think, is likely to be uh, in Medicaid, where yeah. it it uh, can adopt a policy of, um, especially if red states propose to make various adjustments to their Medicaid programs, to make them look more market-like, uh, to allow to charge premiums to Medicaid beneficiaries, at least nominal premiums, to uh, tighten up standards for eligibility, to uh, have Medicaid population, at least some part of it, more in purchasing on exchanges. Um, all of those things are things that can be changed, I think, by administrative rules. Uh, so I think the administration's Medicaid policy in the 2018 is going to be kind of whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever you want, uh, as long as it's not preposterous, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, grant waivers and so forth, which they have considerable leeway in doing. Now, Paul Ryan has promised that he's going to visit Medicare and Medicaid reform and Social Security reform. Uh, And that's been a big issue of his since he entered Congress. Uh, And this is going to be his chance because he knows he's still got the majority. So that would be the one question, Mm -hmm. uh, whether he tries to bring that up uh, during the next year before the elections, uh, you know, while he still is in command. Uh, It's hard to believe he'll get that far since this really is the third rail of politics. And remember when George W. Bush was reelected and, and did not succeed with Social Security. Well, realistically, when you're talking about anything that's going to happen in, in Washington, D.C., you're looking at kind of a, about a six-month window yeah. to get stuff done because of the fact that we have the midterm elections coming up this year. And a lot of people in Washington, D.C. are obviously going to be worried about uh, their campaigns, uh, you know, not, even before that. Yeah. And uh, major structural changes to Medicare or Social Security would require legislation, not budget yeah. reconciliation. So they'd need uh, 60 votes in the Senate, which would be awfully difficult to get. But I think 
think there's going to be at least some verbal support for doing that uh, if, if they can fit it in with, with all these other things. But seemingly one of the areas that needs to be tackled, and it's been talked about a, a lot in the last year or so, involves the opioid crisis in this country and the, and the numbers of deaths uh, that we continually see year after year. Uh, it's been brought up, uh, obviously, here in the Philadelphia area. We see quite a few TV commercials with Governor Christie or former Governor Christie of New Jersey really uh, pushing the agenda in the state of New Jersey. Seemingly, that's going to be his bailiwick to try and, and move this forward in 2018, not only just in New Jersey, but across the country. Yeah, so we, we officially have an opioid czar, Kellyanne Conway. Yeah. Uh, we'll see whether she does anything. But the real question is going to be whether Congress allocates funding. And I think we're going to get another one of these fights over uh, uh, liberals want to spend the money and conservatives are going to say, what do we cut it uh, away from? Uh, but there's going to be intense pressure to do something about opioids and there's going to be a dollar figure attached. Mark? I think it will be the usual debate then over do you actually have a program that can be shown to be effective uh, that we could fund as opposed to um, we need to do something, <laughs> let's spend money and then see if it works. Uh, that will be the debate and I think it would be good to have that debate. But. Uh, 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 the the I think the power of the federal government to do uh, and make an have an enormous impact here is relatively limited. But I, I guess to a degree, if if we're talking about something that you know involves putting together a, a proper program, even when we're in a time where the cost of insurance is still a, a, a big question, the cost of, of you know drug prices is still a big concern, it's hard to see, unfortunately, a, a, a real good plan coming forward with all those other issues that still have to be addressed. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. There'll be, uh, but I think this, this the uh, at least I hope, uh, there will be some, th um, some um, careful thought given uh, to what the federal government can do to improve the situation with opioids, uh, uh, even things like increasing the amount that patients have to pay for opioid medications uh, uh, are things that might want to be, might want to be considered. Yeah. So to, to Mark's point about the administrative changes, um, the FDA is also going to be a focus yep. of a lot of yep. this. And uh, to the extent that uh, prescribing, overprescribing is, is part of the problem, um, there are things that they can do that don't take congressional action. And then the states can look at prescribing issues and trying to rein in doctors who are overprescribing. So I think beyond Congress, um, there's going to be a lot of action uh, at the administrative level. You mentioned the CHIP program a little bit ago, and I wanted yeah. to touch on that for a second because uh, that is obviously been something that that many people have been concerned about because of the rollover of funding that we've seen the last uh, two months uh, in Washington D.C. At some point, that that's going to get done, uh, whether it's before the 19th or if there's another rollover and it plays again. Is the chip program in jeopardy in your mind? Uh, I don't think it's a slam dunk that it's going to okay. get funded. I mean, no one thought it would go this far, and uh, a lot of sacred. Cows in Washington are getting gored these days. Uh, CHIP is an incredibly successful program. It, it insures almost 9 million children uh, who are a little bit uh, too wealthy for Medicaid. It has strong bipartisan support, but there's also a strong constituency saying if we're going to fund it, we have to cut the money from somewhere else. Uh, there's a lot of game playing with yeah. the government shutdown and, and the budget deadline coming up. So I, I would expect it will be funded, but I don't think it's a slam dunk. Mark? I sure hope it will be funded, but I think uh, Rob's right that there could be a kind of standoff where the feds say to the states, if you love your children so much, why don't you pay for it? 
uh, rather than have uh, the more generous federal funding for CHIP, why don't we have cost sharing more like uh, Medicaid for other people? But is that people. really just the, the, the main concern right now in terms of the program is just the sharing of the cost is, at this point? It, well, that's the federal funding that's, yeah. that's being held up. And uh, this, uh, the stories are, of course, the states are going to run out of money. Well, they they don't really run out of money totally. Right. <laughs> there's there's money flowing to Harrisburg and other state capitals. It's uh, but they they run out of the earmarked money for this program. How, how do we how do we address and obviously this is a question I've talked with both of you about. But how do we address the problem of of the rising cost of drug prices in this country? I, I, and it's it's something that uh, I think uh, it's brought up every day. A lot of consumers who have to buy various drugs for whatever ailment they have are dealing with it. On a, on a daily basis, but how do we tackle it, Art? Well, I've got good news and bad news. Uh, the the good, the, or and you, it's hard to tell which is which. So, in in 2017, the number of new drugs that was introduced was 46, I believe, which is the highest it's been uh, since uh, about 1996. Uh, uh, and uh, and those new drugs are introduced at high prices. Uh, uh, the good news is there's a prediction is that the, the rate of introduction of good new drugs will fall dramatically in 2018 uh, relative to that number. Uh, maybe it's just regression to the mean, but it'll fall. Is that good news or bad news? Well, there's not going to be as many great new drugs, but uh, they won't be driving total drug spending either. So uh, at least that component of the increase in drug Spending, which is actually more important than the increase in unit prices, uh, will be uh, lowered in um, 2018 compared to 2017, according to the experts on what's in the drug pipe pipeline. Uh, the price increases uh, 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 probably will continue to be above average. Uh, there's um, uh, some predictions by uh, some of the consultants that uh, insurers are going to get tougher when it comes yeah. to negotiating things. and. Uh, uh, the uh, PBMs, as you know, are in play as merger partners, and all yeah. of that don't really only makes sense if somehow they can get more market power to get lower prices. Uh, the um, uh, the uh, other shoe to drop, I guess, is what the federal government might do for uh, Medicare, uh, where currently the, um, uh, there's uh, not no not significant power to negotiate prices, at least for prescription drugs in Part D. Uh, and um, uh, that probably will be a subject of uh, intense political debate, I think, over the next year, whether the federal government ought to step in more uh, directly and try to uh, get lower prices. The main um, downside of that, I guess, from the point of view of somebody who would be on Medicare if I weren't still teaching, is uh, you, you really, to get lower prices by negotiating, you have to be willing uh, to walk away from uh, making certain products available and say, well, if you're going to charge us that much, we're not going to put that on our list of drugs that right. our beneficiaries can get. And uh, uh, from a beneficiary's perspective, that's not the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. So I think if we really wanted to get our handle on it, uh, we would instill more transparency uh, the system that we have has so many layers uh, that as you start peeling the onion, uh, you just keep getting more and more and more. Yeah. Uh, we have the PBMs and the um, wholesalers uh, and, and the manufacturers and the pharmacies and uh, and the insurers and, and 
even more layers than that, uh, each of which is, is taking a few crumbs and those crumbs start to add up. Uh, I don't think that we really have our, our uh, good handle on what each of them is taking and how that contributes and, and what the incentives are, mm -hmm. uh, which raises the question of do we really want to do something about it? We have some very powerful sub-industries in there that, that are making money off of this. Uh, I think ultimately, as, as Mark was saying, the bargaining at the back end, uh, when the insurers decide what they actually will pay, uh, that will be the pressure on the system. Uh, so the question is, do they have the will to do it? And uh, do, do they have the, the power? Um, perhaps the consolidation we're seeing in the industry will give them the power. Uh, but I, I think until we really know what's, uh, what's happening behind each of those layers of the onion, uh, it's going to be hard to get a global sense of this. Well, the, I, the one thing I think you will see uh, with Scott Gottlieb at the FDA is not nearly so exciting as uh, smashing dr drug prices, but maybe helpful, uh, which is to uh, make it easier for generics to enter quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, we, the one way we know to get prices down uh, is to have generic entry or, for more generally, the availability of alternatives. And um, uh, that is something that uh, sounds less exciting than um, um, doing battle with, uh, with the evil empire, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, it may actually be uh, certainly more congenial to Republicans as a way of getting prices down and, 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 may, may, and, and, if it can happen, will be effective. Uh, yes, for those drugs that can have generic that, substances. That can have generic so, yeah. You have the new drugs that are still on patent, and then you have the biologicals for which the biosimilars are difficult and time-consuming to, to get to market. And yeah. those specialty drugs are the ones with the biggest price increases. Uh, and then we have instances where there are uh, drugs off patent, but there's still only one supplier uh, because of the economics of manufacturing and distributing them. Uh, so uh, getting generics to market will certainly help for those drugs uh, that are susceptible to competition, uh, but there are a lot out there that are not. You mentioned uh, the FDA. Uh, you also have uh, Health and Human Services as well that needs to have a, a new director as well uh, put into place here. And, and that will probably, I guess we will see some sort of confirmation hearings in the, in the next few weeks as well. Yeah, and that's going to raise a lot of interesting policy questions because uh, the ACA uh, started a lot of experiments with the Medicare program. We're yep. trying to save money and increase costs, accountable care organizations and bundled payments and Medicare innovation and so forth. So, uh, the head of HHS is going to have a lot of say over whether those experiments continue, and that's going to have a lot to do with the way hospitals get paid, the way they function, uh, the way doctors get paid. So this is going to be a lot more important uh, than may initially meet the eye. And it's already shaping up as the usual debate. I mean, the evidence so far on the impact of those uh, innovations, and they actually were uh, demonstrated or put in demonstration projects even before the ACA is pretty minimal. They don't seem to be able to be all that effective. But mm -hmm. then you have one camp that says, well, just give us time. Uh, eventually, these things will work. And another camp that says, of course, well, they're not going to work. We ought to get rid of them. And I think you'll have those two arguments back and forth. Uh, um, and the question is how much patience, I guess, people have to wait and see whether anything 
like this is effective. Uh, the one thing to think about, though, at least for Medicare, is that, uh, and this also gets back to your uh, uh, question about uh, Representative Ryan, uh, what he wants to see achieved in Medicare may actually be happening anyway as the fraction of the Medicare population choosing private uh, Medicare Advantage plans is yeah. growing fairly dramatically. They are uh, at least able to innovate without anybody ha saying, giving them permission, without having to gut, run it by Congress, uh, and um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and effectively um, they they are paid by what amounts to a Medicare voucher. Uh, t tied to the uh, cost of the traditional Medicare plan. So uh, we may get to a Medicare voucher program sooner than Representative Ryan thinks or could accomplish by changing legislation just by, by what, what happens in, in this particular part of Medicare. So the key question is, what's the value of the voucher? Uh, yes. Right now, it's it's pretty generous, and the uh, insurance companies do very well and are very yeah, eager do. to be in that market, and yeah. the patients are very eager because, for the most part, they get good coverage. Uh, the long-term goal of, of Paul Ryan, as I understand it, is to put sort of a global tighten the, tighten the screws on the value. Yeah, of the value. yeah, yeah. So, so the uh, the value which would the, change the the kind of the the overall the the potential enjoyment of having those types of plans, correct? Right. Well, they, they might uh, not cover uh, the kind of plan that you want, and undoubtedly yeah. you would not be able to get the kind of coverage that, that people enjoy right now under Medicare Advantage without supplementing your, your, yourself. So that would be the big question, whether he can get that through. And then politically, he'd be coming awfully close to that third rail, so uh, it's not clear he's going to want to do that so close to the election. Yeah, it's going to be um, interesting and also complicated because the uh, in in law already are fairly substantial limits on the rate of growth of spending in traditional Medicare, especially in macro, especially for physicians, but also for hospitals. So, although the value of the voucher, uh, the uh, value of the voucher may go down, uh, so may the um, attractiveness yeah. of traditional Medicare. So it's all rel one relative to the other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which brings up a, an issue that, that may or may not get some attention, but if we really uh, want to get at, at some of the cost increases, today's uh, New York Times uh, had a story about the body of research showing it's the prices that we pay, not, not the amount of services that right. we get. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe uh, we'd be able to start with Medicare ratcheting down prices, but uh, if we can't do that, it's going to be tough to get a handle on but, things. And even, that, even that's kind of hard. I did research on this, and uh, it is prices stupid between the U.S. and other countries, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's why we spend a lot more than other countries. It's the main reason. But uh, why do we spend a lot more on – why are our prices higher? Well, except for prescription drugs, which is a different category, uh, for hospitals particularly, the higher prices go along with higher wages to people who mm -hmm. work in hospitals sure. than are paid in other countries. And obviously, that's a touchy question then. But uh, as we're seeing, we, we're seeing unbelievable growth in uh, in healthcare in general in terms of jobs and 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 yep. that means yeah. that mm -hmm. means that there's more money being generated in that industry than ever before that's right no it, it, it has been uh, it was during the recession the bright spot in terms of hiring now it's kind of back in terms of the middle of the trend but it's still uh, 
uh, a growing, uh, growing the spending growth is driven largely by cost growth, which is driven largely by hiring more people and paying them better. Yeah, uh, healthcare in this country is a giant uh, jobs program. Yeah, uh, it really is. Yep, and it's immune to recessions. When you look at the graphs, it continues to go up regardless of the rest of the economy. Uh, right now, the rest of the economy is growing, so it's not standing out, but it's a steady uh, growth uh, year after year. It's now well above 10% of non-farm uh, employment. Um, and that's going to be an issue if, if you want to touch it, if you if you really want to start shutting down hospitals and uh, yeah. cutting payments, um, that's, that's going to be jobs. Well, I, I wanted to wrap up by, by there was a word that I, I think has been thrown around in, in this industry for some time now, and it's affordability. Mm-hmm. And the question I have for both of you is, uh, should we have a new expectation of what affordability is within this industry, or is there still room, you know, to be able to make it more affable for for the consumer? Rob? I think it's going to be tough to make it affordable, partly uh, because of those incomes uh, and those jobs yeah. uh, th- that are at risk, and partly because of new technology uh, that keeps coming on board. We don't want to do without the, the miracle drugs and the miracle machines and so forth. Uh, so I think that's going to be a tough one. Um, what we're seeing now, uh, I, I think the one uh, somewhat effective way of dealing with it is the cost sharing, uh, where uh, patients have to pay out of their own pocket the $6,000 deductibles yeah. and the huge payment uh, co-payments and then having to make some tough decisions. It's not the way we'd like to deal with it, uh, but it seems to be the way we're going. Mark? Well, it's called the Affordable Care Act. Uh, uh, but uh, the complaint has been uh, from uh, that from Republicans that it only made care affordable by generous subsidies, which right. their taxpayer constituents would rather not pay. And from the point of view of uh, beneficiaries, that wasn't really affordable after all. The premiums were still too high or the cost sharing too high. So uh, in some ways, I'd like to banish the term affordability because I think it, 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 it uh, sounds like it means something, but it really uh, just hides a lot of value judgments that people would rather not make about either what they'd be willing to pay for themselves for their own benefit if push came to shove or what they'd be willing to pay in taxes to help their fellow citizens. Uh, I think Rob's right. The one thing we do that know that lower spending is cost-sharing, but that, of course, raises affordability issues. The other, which is a little more recent, is a proliferation, particularly in the exchange plans of narrow network plans, where yeah. you can hold mm-hmm. your costs down if you're willing to give up uh, the opportunity to go, uh, let me put it bluntly, the best hospitals and doctors in town. Yeah. Uh, and the second best, of course, may still be pretty good, but uh, that's the kind of choice that uh, it's hard to uh, um, uh, have, uh, hard to persuade people that they have to accept. Yeah, uh, what we've done is to push a lot of this onto the insurance companies. Uh, they are the ones who narrow the networks. They're the ones who impose the deductibles, yep. and they seem to be willing to play the role of the bad guys. I guess they traditionally are in that role. Uh, it's easier than a politician doing that. So I suspect we'll be seeing more of that. Great seeing you guys again. Okay. Thank you very much for coming in. Mark Pauly here from the uh, Wharton School. Rob Field from Drexel University joining us here in studio. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.